Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast, Episode 11, The Race for Orbits. On May 25, 1961, President Kennedy declared that the nation should commit itself to landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth before the end of the decade. But when he said this, the United States was still trying to put an astronaut in orbit. The Soviets had already accomplished this the month before. NASA, however, would continue to work toward this goal of a manned orbital flight without success through the end of 1961. Before Project Mercury could proceed with an orbital flight, NASA needed to complete the planned series of suborbital flights using the Mercury-Redstone spacecraft rocket combination. NASA had originally planned on three such suborbital flights. The first, as I've already covered, was the MR-3, the flight of Alan Shepard on Freedom 7, which launched on May 5, 1961. The second suborbital flight, the MR-4, was that of Gus Grissom on Liberty Bell 7, launched on July 21, 1961. Grissom named his spacecraft Liberty Bell 7 after the shape of the capsule, and to follow up on the name of Freedom from the last spacecraft. The number 7 was added for continuity and to represent the teamwork that enabled the launch. Grissom's suborbital flight lasted about 16 minutes, about just as long as Alan Shepard's flight, and it made Grissom the third person and the second American in space. During his flight, Grissom furthered efforts to learn how to control a spacecraft by taking manual control of all three axes of movement at the same time, pitch, yaw, and roll. Alan Shepard had done similarly during the previous flight, but he had taken over these controls one at a time. Besides this experiment, Grissom was given time to make observations through a trapezoidal window that had been installed in Liberty Bell 7. The flight of Liberty Bell 7 was remarkably successful, except for one bit of controversy that happened after the spacecraft splashed down in the ocean. This was the premature release of the spacecraft's hatch. In the Mercury spacecraft, there were two means of egress. One was through the top of the spacecraft. This exit was a bit difficult because it required the astronaut to remove some blocking material and then climb out of the top of the spacecraft. For this reason, and just in case an astronaut was ever injured, NASA added a second means of egress. This was a hatch on the side of the spacecraft. The hatch, though, was not like a door that could be opened and closed. Rather, it was held in place by 70 bolts. In order to open the hatch, there was a small explosive that wound it around each bolt. The explosive mechanism could be activated by pushing a plunger inside the spacecraft or pulling on a lanyard hidden inside a compartment on the outside of the spacecraft. After Grissom landed, he took off his helmet 
and checked himself in preparation to exit. A helicopter then arrived and asked if Grissom was ready for pickup. The procedure here was for the helicopter to latch onto the spacecraft and then Grissom would blow the hatch and exit. Grissom, however, told the helicopter to hold while he recorded the information on his instrument panel. When this was done, he radioed that he was ready for pickup. He then removed the safety pin from the plunger that would blow the hatch, but he did not push the plunger because he was still waiting for the helicopter to latch onto the spacecraft first. But suddenly he heard a loud thud and the hatch blew away. At this point, the ocean began to rush into the capsule and the capsule started to sink. Grissom swam away and the helicopter moved in to try to hook onto Liberty Bell 7 and pull it out of the water. But the water was now weighing down the spacecraft and an engine warning light came on as the pilot tried to pull Liberty Bell 7 out of the ocean. Grissom saw that the helicopter was having problems recovering the spacecraft and he tried to swim back to see if he could help. But around this time, Grissom encountered his own problems. He realized that he was losing buoyancy. You see, the spacesuit also served as a flotation device. The spacesuit was supposed to be airtight even when not wearing the helmet. A rubber neck dam around the collar was supposed to keep air inside the suit for buoyancy while the astronaut was in the water. But Grissom realized that in his rush to exit the spacecraft, he had accidentally left open an air inlet valve, so water was actually going inside his suit. At the same time, air kept escaping around the rubber neck dam, probably because of the pressure of the water on his suit. A second helicopter then arrived to help Grissom by throwing him a lifeline and hauling him on board. The pilot of the first helicopter, which was still trying to recover Liberty Bell 7, finally gave up. Worried that he might lose his helicopter as well as the spacecraft, he finally let Liberty Bell 7 go and it sank into the ocean. Liberty Bell 7 would remain at the bottom of the ocean until its recovery in 1999. It now sits in the Cosmosphere in Hutchinson, Kansas. The loss of Liberty Bell 7, only the second American spacecraft to have been in space, led to an inquest. Grissom was put under the spotlight and accused of having blown the hatch prematurely. Grissom insisted that he had done no such thing. The evidence tends to support Grissom's position. In later missions, when astronauts did hit the plunger to blow the hatch, the astronauts would all receive a superficial wound on their hand. Grissom did not have this wound. Most likely, something had caught on the lanyard used to blow the hatch from the outside, and this is what caused the premature release of the hatch. In the future, NASA would modify spacecraft hatches and engineer them with a mind to prevent premature releases. This generally made hatches harder to open and will contribute to the fatal Apollo 1 accident in which Grissom himself was one of the victims. But more about that in a later episode.
After Grissom's flight aboard Liberty Bell 7, NASA debated whether it should even bother with any further suborbital Mercury Redstone flights. Because the Soviets had conducted an orbital flight with Yuri Gagarin on Vostok, NASA felt pressure to match that achievement as soon as possible and perform their own manned orbital flight. Thus, Robert Gilruth, the head of NASA's Space Task Group, which oversaw Mercury, debated canceling the remaining Mercury-Redstone flights and moving ahead with the Mercury-Atlas flights. In fact, Gilruth even debated conducting a three-orbit mission for the very first manned Mercury-Atlas launch. Because Yuri Gagarin had flown only a single orbit, the thinking, perhaps a rather petty thinking, was that the United States could overtake the Soviet Union by performing a three-orbit flight. This race for more orbits, however, was short-lived. On August 7, 1961, just a few weeks after Grissom's flight, the Soviets sent up German Titov, the second cosmonaut and the fourth human, into outer space. Titov flew on a full-day 17-orbit flight. This impressive flight was still not part of some sort of long-term Soviet space program, though, and it was not a response to Kennedy's direction to NASA to land men on the moon. Rather, Sergei Korolev always had some idea of doing a full-day manned flight, which would amount to about 17 orbits. But while Korolev had ideas for a full-day flight, he didn't actually engage in any concrete planning for this mission until after Yuri Gagarin's mission in April of 1961. Government approval of this full-day mission and the technical details for it were finalized in July of 1961. By this time, President Kennedy had given his May 25, 1961 speech about landing men on the moon before the decade was out. But rather than responding to President Kennedy's challenge to land on the moon, the Soviet Union had far more earthly concerns. When Korolev told Khrushchev, that a second manned launch was being prepared in mid-July of 1961, Khrushchev told Korolev that the mission must be done no later than August 10th, 1961. The reason for this was unclear until a few days after Titov's mission on August 13th when the Berlin Wall rose. Khrushchev, looking ahead, apparently wanted to give the socialist world a moral boost in the midst of what he saw was a coming political crisis over Berlin. As for the mission itself, Titov's one-day 17-orbit mission created some concerns about the ability of humans to cope with weightlessness for long periods of time. In fact, this concern had arisen for the Soviets as early as the Korobol Sputnik 2 mission when Soviet doctors observed the dogs Belka and Strelka moving strangely when in space, and then one of them vomited. For this reason, Gagarin's mission had been limited to a single orbit. So a major objective of Titov's mission was to see whether a human could endure weightlessness for a longer period of time. After reaching orbit, Titov started to feel spatial disorientation. 
He described the feeling of being upside down and reported that his eyes were unable to read the instrument panel in front of him or focus on the earth below. In fact, Titov even considered calling an abort during his second orbit. Around his sixth orbit, Titov tried to eat a meal as planned, but he did not eat very much because he was still feeling unwell, and he ended up vomiting some of what he ate. Starting on his seventh orbit, he began a planned sleep period until his twelfth orbit. After waking up, he still felt disoriented and had a headache, but after his twelfth orbit, he gradually began feeling better and became fully functional. About 25 hours after liftoff, Titov's spacecraft, now dubbed the Vostok 2, re-entered the atmosphere. As with Gagarin's flight, Titov was ejected from the spacecraft in the atmosphere and parachuted to the surface of the Earth outside the spacecraft. After Titov's 17-orbit flight, NASA threw out the idea of conducting any further suborbital Mercury-Redstone missions. NASA announced on August 18, 1961, that based on the review of the data that had been gathered from Alan Shepard's and Gus Grissom's two suborbital flights, no significant information could be gained from a further suborbital flight. This decision by NASA was motivated at least in part by pressure to move on to an orbital flight now that the Soviets had two of those under their belt. The decision to forego further Mercury-Redstone missions suddenly placed a lot of pressure on the next Mercury-Atlas flight. Up to this point in mid-1961, the history of the Mercury-Atlas test launches was not great. There had been three Mercury-Atlas launches up to this time, only one of which was successful. If you'll recall from Episode 6, the MA-1 test failed, likely because the Mercury spacecraft punctured the thin skin of the Atlas during flight. The MA-2 solved this problem by launching a thick-skinned Atlas. This was the one successful Mercury Atlas mission. Then, on April 25, 1961, NASA tried to launch the MA-3. This was supposed to be an unmanned suborbital test flight. But after Gagarin's mission, NASA decided to push for more and converted the flight into an orbital test flight just days before launch. As it turns out, the MA-3 mission ended 40 seconds into launch when the booster failed to roll over toward the correct trajectory. Thus, after NASA decided to forego further Mercury-Redstone flights, all attention in Project Mercury turned to the MA-4 mission. This would be the unmanned orbital test flight that would essentially accomplish what the MA-3 mission had failed to do. With only a 33% success rate so far, and now under pressure to move more quickly after two manned orbital missions by the Soviets, the attitude within NASA was that the MA-4 mission simply had to work. There was no other option. On September 13, 1961, 
the MA-4 launched. NASA breathed a sigh of relief when the mission turned out to be fully successful. The mission showed that a human could have survived on a Mercury Atlas launch. The next mission, MA-5, would be another orbital test launch, but this time with a chimpanzee on board. If this mission was successful, NASA would then send the first American into space on an orbital flight. But still under pressure to match Soviet achievements, some within NASA questioned whether they really needed this chimpanzee flight. Clearly, the flights of Gagarin and Titov showed that humans could survive and function in outer space. A biological stand-in with a chimpanzee was not necessary to demonstrate this. There was also the fear that NASA would be lampooned for launching a chimpanzee into space first, as had happened last time with the MR2 mission. Moreover, psychologically, in the United States, there was a desire to achieve a manned orbital mission in the same year as the Soviets. NASA had already recognized that under the current flight schedule, the first manned Mercury Atlas mission probably would not take place until January 1962. Despite the pressure to move forward with a manned flight quickly, NASA decided to proceed with a chimpanzee for the MA-5 mission. Modifications had been made to the Mercury capsule to address problems identified during the MA-4 mission. These included modifications to the environmental control system, the bonding of the heat shield to the spacecraft, and changes to prevent premature release of the hatch. NASA wanted to ensure that these changed features would work as intended before launching a human. So once again, a colony of chimpanzees was flown from Holloman Air Force Medical Center to Cape Canaveral. Among the colony was Ham, who had flown on the MR2 mission. Despite his experience, Ham would not be selected for the MA5. Instead, another chimpanzee named Enos was selected for the orbital test flight. The MA-5 mission was originally scheduled for November 7, 1961. But as was common during Project Mercury, numerous delays ensued during the checkout process, pushing the launch date back to November 29th. This delay now guaranteed that the first human flight on a Mercury Atlas mission would not happen until 1962. But on November 29, 1961, the MA-5 did successfully take off and enter orbit. The MA-5 mission revealed that there were still some problems with the Mercury spacecraft, but nothing that would have put the life of a human astronaut in danger. The original mission profile of the MA-5 was to conduct three orbits. But once the spacecraft reached orbit, there were problems with the environmental control system and overheating inside the cabin, though these problems were fixed remotely. The bigger problem was a clog in a fuel line to a thruster. This caused the thruster to be stuck open and continually rolled the spacecraft. Automatic controls then fired to correct the spacecraft's roll. 
but each time the automated systems turned on, the spacecraft wasted fuel that would be needed for re-entry. As a result, NASA ended the mission early during the second orbit. This problem, though, seemed to confirm that NASA needed to move on to a manned flight. If a human had been on board the spacecraft, the mission could have been completed with three orbits by simply turning off the automatic system and taking over manual control. As NASA had feared, there were plenty of jokes after the MA5 mission. For example, there was one famous cartoon showing two chimpanzees walking away from a Mercury capsule, with one of the chimps saying, we're a little behind the Russians and a little ahead of the Americans. Joking aside, NASA was playing it safe, and the MA5 mission had qualified all systems for the first manned orbital flight. At a press conference after the MA5 mission, NASA announced its selection of astronauts for the Mercury Atlas orbital missions. The prime astronaut for the first flight would be John Glenn, and Scott Carpenter would be his backup. The prime astronaut for the second flight was Deke Slayton, with Wally Shearer as his backup. These flights were to take place in early 1962. Before we get to the first American astronauts in orbit, however, I am going to go back and cover the start of the Apollo program. Because while NASA was struggling to put the first American into orbit, it was simultaneously laying a lot of the groundwork that would lead to the first manned lunar landing in just eight years. More about that next time. Interested in seeing photos related to this episode? Check out spaceracehistorypodcast.com or click on the link in the description for this episode.